Thanks, Kathy. Uh, thank you. Good evening, everyone. We're small into smaller number tonight, aren't we? <laughs> well, it's good to have you here with us. And as um, Stuart, I think, mentioned earlier, we're going to start tonight a little series on Titus. Only three chapters in this little letter of Paul's uh, to Titus. And. Um, so we're going to be looking at that over the next three weeks. So this is a bit of an introductory sermon and, uh, and uh, we're going to dive into chapter 1. Okay, let me pray before we move on. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to remember what we hear, what we read and may it take root in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought uh, we should start by actually answering the question, who was Titus? Well, Titus was one of Paul's very early converts. In fact, he wasn't a Jew at all. He was a Gentile or a non-Jew. And we believe he was converted by Paul in Antioch. Paul addresses him in verse 4 as his true son in the common faith, which indicates there's a very close bond between Paul and Titus. And in fact, when Paul wrote this letter, Titus had been both a companion to Paul as well as being very active, a very active partner in Paul's ministry for more than 15 years. Strangely, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, Titus isn't mentioned by name at all. We, the commentators fairly use one of the, the us or the we uh, mentioned in Acts. But throughout the rest of the Old uh, New Testament, sorry, mostly in Paul's letters, Titus is mentioned no less than 13 times. Now, Titus's conversion at Antioch was dramatic. It was convincing, so much so that he served as what we might call Paul's Exhibit A to uh, the, the elders or the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. We read about this in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to plead the case for Gentiles or non-Jews who were soundly converted. There was a feeling that they should be circumcised to make them legitimate. But as Paul argued, this was totally unnecessary and producing Titus as an example of a thoroughly converted Gentile believer who was not circumcised. And so we read in Galatians 2 that Titus was acknowledged as a genuine believer and this vindicated Paul's position. It's, a, it's also possible that Titus accompanied Paul during some or all of the, Paul's third missionary journey. And furthermore, it's very likely that Titus was the bearer of Paul's severe letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. After he wrote 1 Corinthians, there's one or two other letters that Paul wrote to that church that we don't have a record of, but one of those letters is referred to as Paul's severe letter. And Titus was the one given the responsibility to take that to the church in Corinth and make sure it was read and received and read. Paul was very concerned about how this letter was going to be received in Corinth. So 
He arranged to meet Titus at Troas. We read this in 2 Corinthians 2. After the letter had been, the severe letter had been delivered. However, and we don't know the reason why, Titus didn't appear at Troas. And so Paul left Troas and travelled on to Macedonia. Titus eventually caught up with Paul uh, in Macedonia. And it was here that Titus brought news from Corinth. And Paul was greatly relieved to hear that the good, the good news that the Corinthians had actually responded favourably to his severe letter and that the worst of the trouble in Corinth was now over. When we come to 2 Corinthians uh, well, chapter 8, Titus is again mentioned here. And it's here that he's uh, accompanied by two other Christian brothers. And he, he, Titus was the bearer of another letter, which is 2 Corinthians. Titus was also given the responsibility for making the final arrangements for the collection begun a year earlier in Corinth for the impoverished believers back in Jerusalem. Now, as you know, after this uh, third missionary journey, Paul went to Jeru- Jerusalem. He was um, locked up in prison and then uh, sent on to Rome to plead his case before the emperor. He was actually released from prison in Rome and he embarked on another uh, missionary journey, again accompanied by Titus. As part of this journey, they called in at Crete, as you can see there, where Paul only spent a brief period of time. But he left Titus to, what he called, to finish the work. Finish the work there of planting churches. Uh, and, and Paul delegated to Titus the, that responsibility as his official authorised representative. And that work was to establish churches right across the island of Crete. And it was while Titus was still in Crete that Paul sent him this letter that we have before us. And at the end of the letter, we see Paul asking Titus to meet him later at a place called Nicopolis, which is up there on the top left-hand side of of the screen. Um, But before Titus left Crete, Paul was actually ever mindful of of ensuring the church is properly established uh, in in, in Crete by sending it another person to replace Titus. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4, we learn that later on, Titus was um, sent on a mission to a place called Dalmatia, which is actually Illyricum on the map there, sort of in the area of modern-day Croatia. And that's the last we hear about him in the New Testament. So we're trying to piece all these little detailed biographical snippets of Titus uh, together But in summary, considering the assignments he has given, he was obviously a very capable and very resourceful leader. Now the situation in Crete itself was quite discouraging. The church was young, it was very unorganised, and its members appeared to be very careless in their behaviour. And one could... Uh, presume that the preaching of the gospel of grace and freedom had given the Cretans the impression that salvation by faith was unconnected to a life of work and living an ethical and moral life. 
And we find six times in this short letter that Christian believers are urged to do good works. And although Paul says that salvation cannot be earned by good works, he says that believers must demonstrate their faith by good works, which is a message for us as well. Now it appears the trouble in Crete, before we dive in further, was caused by a combination of several things. One was the inherent nature of the people of the island. Uh, They had a reputation, which we'll mention a bit later. There was also confusion about Jewish fables and commands that were promoted by people who wanted to return to the Jewish faith. And Paul calls these people as godless, unruly, divisive and mercenary. And the other factor uh, that was causing trouble in the church was that there was a lack of sound leadership in the, in the churches. Now Paul begins the letter by introducing himself. And he introduces himself as both a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul regarded himself as a servant or slave of God. Now in the Greek, Servant and slave, uh, one word is used for both of those uh, words we have in English. But it's a term of great humility, as it indicates a person who has been bought, owned and directed, and in this case, by God. On the other hand, the title Apostle of Jesus Christ is a title of great authority, designating someone who had received a unique personal call if you like, a commission or an authorization, and also an equipping from Jesus himself and who was to be Jesus' inspired messenger. And so the purpose Paul had become God's servant and Christ's apostle was, as he says, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now in this regard, Paul's ministry was governed by the truth of the gospel. And the purpose of his ministry was to share that gospel, to proclaim it, to preach it, and also to nurture people's faith in Jesus. The gospel Paul was called to preach was based on the solid foundation of the knowledge, the true knowledge of God and the truth of the gospel. And just as it is for us, As we grow in our knowledge of God, our faith should also grow. As we we come to understand who God is and what he has done in this world and in our lives personally, it is expected that our faith will grow accordingly. The point here is that knowledge and faith go hand in hand. They're intertwined. And this will lead to an increase in godliness. As we grow in knowledge and faith, it will lead to godly living, godly behaviour. And this is an essential feature of gospel truth. It's a good test of its authenticity that since it comes from God, it leads back to God. And any teaching that does not promote godly living, godliness, is manifestly false. We'll have more to say on that later. So moving on to verse 2. We see that the foundation for our faith and knowledge is 
in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Our faith in Jesus not only saves us for today and makes our lives godly or holy, but it also gives us a hope for the future, and that's an eternal future. And we have the assurance of that eternal future. It is certain because of God's promises. And God cannot lie. He wouldn't be God if he lied. And we have to appreciate that our God is a promise-making God. All through the Bible, God makes promises to us. But the best bit is God keeps his promises. And he has promised us a, a place in heaven for eternity. We've been born again into a living hope of eternal life because we have trusted in Jesus. Verse 3 then brings us full circle. Paul reminds us of his divine appointment and the command to pre- of God to preach the gospel and thus to establish the faith of the Cretan people and to grow that faith in the, and knowledge. Paul related everything in his ministry to the truth of the gospel. His calling and his preaching depended on his knowledge of God and of his faith in Jesus. Those two things. And he wanted Titus. He wanted Titus to hold on to this fact and make the gospel a priority in his ministry as well. So in this first chapter, in this letter to Titus, Paul reminds Titus of the two responsibilities he had to fulfil in Crete, both of which relied on the truth of the gospel being understood and proclaimed. The first thing Titus was called to do was to put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. This is a matter of establishing the church. Titus was not meant to be some sort of spiritual dictator on the island of Crete. However, he was Paul's official apostolic representative and he had authority to plant and establish churches right through the island. And as we read in other places, it was Paul and see in other places, it was Paul's policy or practice to appoint elders from the places where he planted churches. But he hadn't been able to stay long enough in Crete to actually do that. And so he delegated to Titus the task of identifying and appointing gifted and conscientious elders to continue the work of building up the churches and to have pastoral oversight of the people in those churches. So then Paul then provides guidelines some guidelines or qualifications for being an elder. And this uh, list is expanded more in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy. But here's uh, the list in Titus. In fact, there's a lot of overlap between Titus and 1 Timothy, but uh, we'll stay focused on Timothy. Titus, sorry. <laughs> Pardon me. The first qualification was that they, the elders should be blameless. And this doesn't mean that they were flawless or faultless or anybody in position of eldership would be disqualified because, as Stuart mentioned before, we all sin. However, it does have the sense here that an elder, 
must be a person of integrity, a person above reproach, a person who has this, this, doesn't provide any loopholes for criticism. And that they shouldn't have like skeletons in the closet that might reappear and embarrass them and the wider church down the track. And I think all this recognises that the office of elder in the church is a very public one. And so the elder's public reputation is critical. It's important. The qualification extends also to the elder's household. The idea here is that that elders cannot hope to win strangers to Christ if they cannot win those in their family who are most exposed to their influence. Nor can he expect to manage a church if he cannot manage his own home. One of the challenging realities of being a minister is that not only are you you personally on public display, but your family is as well. Unfortunately, ministers tend to live in something like a goldfish bowl. There, our lives, our homes and our families are open to the public and are quite often very publicly scrutinised and possibly criticised. It's a pressure ministers live with. But in this regard, Pauline goes on to mention some of the temptations elders may face. And this is important because if an elder cannot manage these things for themselves, then they cannot be expected to be able to manage a church. So Paul says an elder must not be overbearing or proud. Leadership positions bring a sense of prestige and often have power. And this can sometimes bring the temptation to become arrogant and stubborn and overbearing. An elder must also be able to control their temper. Pastors are often obliged to minister to difficult and demanding people. And the temptation is to become irritable and impatient. An elder must also avoid becoming drunk and inclined to violence. Probably goes without saying. They should also avoid the temptation of seeing the ministry as being a means of making money. Pastors should be motivated by service, not by money or greed. And Paul probably mentions these qualities because they had a particular relevance to the situation in in Crete, which he mentions a bit later on. I'll get back to that. Paul enlists five positive characteristics or virtues which are largely self-explanatory, at least I hope they are. An elder must be hospitable and uh, they are people who should be able to welcome people into their own homes and uh, that's not just their friends or members of the church but visitors as well. And... We should note that these churches, the churches we're talking about, didn't occupy big buildings uh, in their communities. They met in homes. And so the churches were small groups of people meeting in homes. So this is where the hospitality comes into play. And generally the master of that home was the elder of the church. And so you can see how so much of their family, their person, um, was on display for those members of their church. 
but they also had to have an open door for people in the community to be hospitable. And if um, that's a particular gift, then grab one of these forms and because we'd like people to be able to open their homes and show that sort of hospitality. And I should also say, these virtues that we're talking about really shouldn't just apply to elders. They actually apply to everyone, uh, every one of us who believe in Jesus. They're characteristics that should um, be readily apparent in each and every one of us, not just in elders. Yes, elders uh, should be an example of these qualities, but it's a a model, an example uh, to everyone. Okay, moving right along. Uh, An elder should be one who loves what is good, a person who is charitable, they're generous, they support good causes. They should be self-controlled, having both a sober, sensible judgment and being disciplined, having a disciplined lifestyle. They need to be upright in their dealing with people, honest and just. They need to be holy in their attitude to God. God needs to be a priority in their lives and they need to be self-disciplined, which is a word that can encompass all these things. And lastly, and most importantly, particularly in the Cretan context, elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, this is the most important thing that Paul wanted to convey to Titus. Churches need to be established and built on the truth of the gospel. And elders, those in charge of the churches, those who had oversight of the churches, needed to have a good grasp of the truth of the gospel so they could teach and instruct the apprentices, their apprentices in Jesus. And they needed to hold on to that firmly, not wavering away from that truth. And it needed to be the basis for everything they did and said. And there's an inherent warning here not to deviate from the gospel truth. Not to add things that you kind of think should be there but are not, but we'll add them in anyway. Adding things that are misleading and not of God. This is so important because elders needed to teach the truth of the gospel, the facts. But also to use gospel truth to confront or correct any errors or false teaching as they arose. Which brings us to the reason Titus was to appoint elders in every town and ensure that they met the standards that Paul had laid down. There were many false teachers who were leading people astray. It was a real issue for these young churches in Crete. And Paul's strategy that he's putting forth here and how to deal with false teaching was to multiply the number of teachers who were equipped to rebut and refute errors of doctrine. And so Titus' second task was therefore to silence the false teachers. Now when we come to this paragraph here, the second part of chapter 1, Paul has nothing good to say about the false teachers. 
they were rebellious. In other words, they refused to submit to God's word or to the authority of the apostle. They were full of meaningless, meaningless talk. They were full of hot air. And what they said may have impressed people. And there were people in that day who were travelling philosophers and speakers and they made a fair bit of money through this. But what these false teachers were saying was empty of substance. Worse than that, they were deceiving people. Not only did their talk fail to edify people, but they actively led people astray. And some of them were trying to lead people back to Jewish legalism. And they taught about the Jewish customs that they expected or wanted people to to follow. But in doing so, they were growing in influence. And they were affecting things. More than that, they were disrupting whole households. Remember I said churches met in homes? Well, it wouldn't be hard for a false teacher to come into that environment and start causing trouble amongst the people who are meeting in that home. But furthermore, Paul accuses them of having ulterior motives. Namely, they were doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. In other words, they were in it for the money. For the money they could make, the money they could get from the people meeting there. I love the way the King James Bible puts it, for the sake, for filthy lucre's sake. Those who have been around for a while know that term, filthy lucre. If you want to know where that came from, it came from Titus. But Paul summed up their character this way. He says they are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now this little side bit uh, was attributed to one of their uh, philosophers or prophets from long ago by the name of Epimenides. Oh, I did it again. What's how's it pronounced? Epimenides. That's close. That'll do great, he says. <laughs> I should have put it on the screen, but then I'd be really embarrassed because I can't pronounce it. Anyway, Epimenides. <laughs> he was actually, he wrote about 600 BC, so six centuries before this time. The Cretans were characterised in this way. Liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. It was kind of like one of those general terms people used to describe a particular people group. And so Paul (coughs) threw this back at them. Hey guys, this is what you are known for. And Paul goes on to say that both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Probably a bit harsh, don't you think? But Paul was trying to make a point here. He wanted to to give these guys a real shake-up, a wake-up call, if you like, by saying, this is not the way to live a godly, holy life honouring to God. And we know that Paul believed in the power of the gospel to transform people. He wanted to actually uh, confront these false teachers. He wanted them to see them change their lives to become more in line with true gospel truth. Now, just an aside, there were people in Crete who were not like this. 
Uh, there were even some people from Crete who received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Uh, in that, that first uh, flush of uh, the Holy Spirit coming on people. And as part of his task in Crete, Titus was also to appoint elders from amongst the local population, upon, amongst the Cretan believers. And these people were certainly not liars, but they were teachers of the truth. So Paul's direction to Titus was that he was to silence these false teachers. He was to do this in two, the, two ways. He was to rebuke them and hopefully draw them back through the truth of the gospel. And secondly, he was to challenge and refute false teaching with the truth of the gospel. He was also to encourage the believers to build their faith on true and sound doctrine. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we take away from this? What's the message for us? Hopefully, we're not a false teacher. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and not all of us aspire to be elders. So what do we take from this passage? Well, the first thing we take from this is the importance of the Bible as the word of God. This should be our standard for our life and our faith. And we can use study guides, commentaries and teaching outlines to assist our learning as apprentices to Jesus. But we need to evaluate everything we read or hear against the truth of God's word. We need to read and study the Bible so we can evaluate for ourselves what is true and what is false. And if we're asked to teach a lesson, say in Sunday school or in youth group or in a life group, as part of our preparation, what we should always do first is read the Bible text. That's first and foremost. Now can I say that the people who preach from this pulpit in this church work hard to make sure we adhere to the truth of the Bible. That's why I put the passages up so you can see for yourselves what is what scripture is actually saying. And we endeavour to teach what scripture says. We do this hum humbly and very conscientiously. It's a great responsibility to have, uh, uh, to have that task of preaching God's word. But everyone needs to carefully evaluate what is preached. And we need to measure everything against the standard of Scripture. And if you hear something preached up here that you feel is at variance with the Bible, then challenge the preacher about that and ask questions if you want further clarification. The second thing we can take from this passage is we need to aspire to God's standards in both the appointment of our leaders and pastors, but in our own lives as well. Make no mistake, the world is watching us. And when people around us know or become aware that we're a Christian, they'll be watching what we say and what we do and how we act. And we are not just apprentices of Jesus. 
We're more than that. We are his divine ambassadors, his divine representatives in this lost and fallen world. And so we need to act accordingly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God. We thank you that you've called us to believe in you as Lord and Saviour. Thank you that you equip us for this task of growing in our faith, but being ready to give an account of ourselves and of our faith. May we seek to learn the truth of your gospel. And may we be bold in proclaiming it to those we associate with. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think we've got Q&A. Thanks, Stuart. Fantastic. So, any questions? So I've got a question for... Me. Jeff? <laughs> you can ask Stuart too if you want to. Well, you can. I've got a microphone. I'm okay if you don't. But <laughs> she does have a question. Great. Caro! Hey. Here you go. Um, just thinking about the false teachers, um, I think, as you said, we you guys work hard to speak the truth, which is great. Um, do you think that that false teaching thing was a thing of that day that in particular, and it was obviously something they were struggling with? Do you think that's still evident today in our culture, that there are false teachers, or is it just something of that time that was really new church and there was lots of other crazy stuff going around? It's a message for all time. Yeah. Uh, it's something we always need to be aware of. There's a certain ex-rugby player who's getting a lot of news at the moment. Uh, from the things that he's saying as a Christian believer. And some of the things that uh, Mr. Folau has been saying have been taken out of context and, uh, uh, yeah, have really given the church a not-so-good name. So he's very public and people are really tuned into what he's saying. And if what he's saying is incorrect, we need to be aware of that. Uh, because people grab onto things that guys like him say and say, oh, is that true? Like, does, is this country, under, or his latest thing was, is this country under judgment because of the same-sex marriage thing and where, where that's why all the bushfires and the droughts happening? Well, that's Old Testament teaching. Yes, God judged the nation of Israel when they're disobedient, but that doesn't apply to this day and age. You can't draw those connections. And uh, it was right that people were offended by what he said. Uh, Can I also say that we live in the end times and there will be wars and rumours of wars, there will be natural disasters, but that's all characteristic of the end times we live in until the day Jesus returns. Yeah, So you just can't pin down that sort of consequential thing. But that's probably a very current example of false teaching mm-hmm. now Steve I'll give you the mic cause, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say the Archbishop put out a good tweet about that um, just soon after without yeah. mentioning Falau so that uh, he wasn't drawn into any of the nonsense but um, mm. yeah that was very helpful um, what's that? yes Essentially, um, thank you for the mic. I love it. <laughs> now, just um, you talked about this lovely mix uh, in the first verse of um, 
Paul's humility, describing yes. himself as a servant and uh, of authority, uh, describing himself as an apostle mm. uh, with the, the authority of God himself. Um, I know you uh, explained and applied that, you know, that can mean, uh, that means for us as well, but could you just expand on that a little, um, that mix of humility and authority that we have as we seek to be ambassadors for Jesus uh -huh. with our neighbours, in our workplace, in our families, where people are not believers? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's conceivable that a person could be rather kind of puffed up with the fact that I'm saved and you're not. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's not a... Uh, a, a way of being humble and so the, there is a balance that uh, yes we have authority to preach yes we've been given God's authority to be his representatives we may not be apostles it's a particular role in the New Testament some would argue that's a current role of uh, church planters are sometimes known as apostles but um, that's that's a, a, a an authorised role, okay. So as ministers, we've been ordained, and so uh, yeah, you can sort of get a bit puffed up with that. You know, I'm so good. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm recognised minister of the gospel. Well, that's great, but we need to have that attitude of humility, and be aware of the great responsibility we have as servants of God and servants of His people. And so, yeah, you don't want to swing too far either way. I don't know if I quite answered the question. Anybody else? <laughs> no. Look, this is just completely out of left field. Um, I want to encourage you, it's a really a comment, um, I want to encourage people to say amen um, clearly, clearly when... Uh, yeah, thank you, Stuart. When uh, we're praying and when we're, um, you know, when you've said, you know, prayed after the sermon and so on, hmm. um, I, I, you know, I'm a bit of a blow-in, uh, having only been here for three months, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I like to know that my brothers and sisters agree hmm. with what we're saying and that it's true and that we, yeah, this is this hmm. is so true and so about life and whether it's Stuart or whoever praying or you know whatever so no, I just want to encourage everybody yeah. amen amen, amen. <laughs> good one Steve I know we're all sleepy but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a hot night so Thanks, yeah Steve. thank you uh, uh,